This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Late last year, a journalist was sending a flash, I should say, was sent a flashing image via Twitter that sent him into an epileptic seizure. This journalist, Kurt Eichenwald of Newsweek, had written about his battle with epilepsy before. Recently, the FBI arrested a man who they believe sent the tweet to Eichenwald for intentionally trying to injure the writer over his coverage of President Trump. This is just one of the latest in a run of events using Twitter as a vehicle for promoting violence, hate, and more. Overseas, there's a rise in tweets of swastikas in them. Back here in the U.S., one of the Twitter accounts for McDonald's was hacked, putting up an anti-Trump message. To look at the impact of all of these events and Twitter's place in it, we welcome in Jennifer Goldbeck, who's director of the Social Intelligence Lab at the University of Maryland, and also uh, Andrea Matwishan, who is a professor of law and professor of computer science at Northeastern University and also former senior policy advisor at the FTC. Jennifer, Andrea, great to have you both back on the show. Thanks. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. Andrea, I'll start with you. Let's start with this attack on Mr. Eichenwald. This type of thing kind of surprised me that it's actually happened before, but this is a little bit of of a different angle to it in the fact that the FBI is getting involved in this and criminal charges may very well be coming forth. Yes. So based on what we know from the press release uh, put out by the Department of Justice um, and the press coverage that um, happened prior to this uh, press release from DOJ. Uh, there was a targeted message on Twitter. It, it wasn't clear whether it was a direct message or it was a um, message that was in public view, but started with the handle of the journalist in question. And that image that, image that was blinking that triggered the seizure was attached to that Message And so the question that uh, this raises is whether there's something new here in the fact that it was a tweet that caused this harm, or is this just um, the use of technology as the method of uh, hurting someone, and this is a new kind of uh, weapon intended to cause uh, a very old harm of physical pain to someone. And so where do you uh, come down on this issue? For me, the medium is sort of irrelevant. The point is that the the alleged perpetrator here knew that this particular person suffered from a particular condition um, and chose the tool that was most likely to inflict harm based on that condition. So whether it's putting peanuts into the food of someone that you know has a peanut allergy, or it is, um, you know, cutting the brake lines of someone who's about to be driving. The fact that this was a a tweet that had the visual trigger attached to it, um, it's just one of any one of a number of um, possible tools that can be used by a malicious person to take advantage of uh, someone's health condition and hurt them. Jen, what was your reaction to when, when this started to play out? Uh, I mean, I completely agree that I think these are the appropriate charges. I think the, the actual charge that was brought was cyber-stalking with intent to kill or cause bodily harm. 
And, uh, you know, that seems right to me. If you put a strobe light outside his house, that would count. If you had a robot drive it out, that would count. So if you send it over the Internet, it seems like that should count, too. Um, I mean, the fact that Twitter is being used in this way is both horrible and unsurprising, um, especially given the kind of space that he was playing in here, um, you know, where he's uh, posting a lot that's critical of the Trump candidacy and the Trump administration. And uh, the Trump supporters, if you actually read the tweets that are directed at him, which I did over the last couple of days, um, it's just a, a terrible place to spend some time. And uh, it's not really surprising to me, you know, given the people who are interacting with him, that they might actually take it this far. So because of this, in your mind, then what what does what does Twitter have to do to try and address this problem? Because obviously this is a, a, a serious concern on a lot of different levels. Yeah. You know, so there's a couple ways to think about this. Twitter was sort of brought in on this case. There was a subpoena to get the information about the Twitter account to actually connect it to a person. Um, they actually ended up finding out who the person was without Twitter having to reveal the information, but there was going to be a battle there. And I suspect, even though we didn't see it play out in this case, that's something that they're going to have to start thinking about. Um, they're very pro-free speech, right. but that doesn't mean protecting the anonymity of people who are actively attacking other people. Um, so I think that's something that they'll have to think about. But I think if we if we look at this specific incident, right, so we know that there's a percentage of people with epilepsy who are susceptible to have seizures triggered by flashing lights. It's not everyone, but some are. Um, that's a really easy block to do. Like, Twitter shouldn't allow seizure-triggering GIFs on their website, and technologically it would be quite simple to detect when a GIF is uploaded that would do that. Um, so that seems like a really clear first step that they can take to at least prevent this from happening again, because Kurt Eichenwald has said, that after he had this seizure, he's received lots more of these kinds of images. So that seems like Twitter should be doing something about that right away. Well, and Andrea, this is, brings up another piece that we've talked about on this show as well, is that just kind of this venue at times allows people to think they have a level of freedom and to be able to do things that, that they probably should not consider doing. And, and obviously it's it, it's the, the idea of the concept of the First Amendment uh, is one that really does not play well in this particular situation. Yes. So I think here we have a clear case where this isn't really about speech. This is about physically hurting people. So while uh, someone is entitled to their opinions on journalists' coverage or on the journalist as a person, at the point at which you cross the line into engaging in an act that you intend to cause physical harm to that person, you're no longer in speech land you are in criminal infliction of an assault or um, homicide or manslaughter, depending on what the, the outcome is. Um, and so uh, in 2015, Twitter enabled a user-controlled feature to disable autoplay on videos and GIFs. And uh, that uh, certainly is a demonstration of a step to give users more control over how they see their content. Um, and so that's uh, one way that uh, users, such as the reporter in question, can um, engage with a technological buffer to help limit some of this. But um, the user has to take that proactive step um, 
uh, in many cases to enable that granular setting. So the question of where technology defaults should fall and um, how companies interact with building their products to consider these kinds of uh, abuses of their dual-purpose tools, it's a, a great question that companies think about and need to engage with actively as they build new technology. Well, that that brings me to the next question, Andrea, is the fact that obviously, as this has played out and as uh, was alluded to, Twitter helped to a degree in this process to try and, and find this person. Uh, mm-hmm. I guess the next question is, what could Twitter have done in, in advance? And partly, I think what Jen said about, you know, kind of eliminating these types of, of GIF images to be on there in the first place. And it doesn't seem like that that Twitter has any liability in this case because of the fact that they were kind of used as a as a vehicle for this one gentleman to to send this gift image to uh, Mr. Eichenwald. So, uh, as we've discussed in other uh, situations where a technology intermediary is used to convey. Um, information that uh, has the potential to, to hurt people. There's a, a starting assumption under Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act that when a company such as Twitter is acting just as a platform of conveyance for other people's speech, that liability does not attach to, to that company. Um, and so that would certainly be Twitter's position in this case as well. Um, but that is a a different inquiry from uh, the question of whether voluntarily Twitter might take uh, some additional steps if they choose to to protect uh, users who are triggered in the ways that um, the journalist was here. Um, so those two, two questions are distinct. And certainly yeah. with the question of cooperating with warrants, uh, I think uh, Twitter certainly would take the position that they are happy to cooperate with a duly issued warrant. Some of the questions that have uh, arisen have involved requests that have been more informal from law enforcement. And right. those are the requests that technology companies in particular balk at. Um, so while compliance with a, an appropriately issued warrant, um, I think, would uncontroversial for most technology companies is those more informal requests that present problems. Jen? Yeah, I mean, I think that that last point is is one worth considering because it plays out across the spectrum. I mean, I think in this case, uh, you know, Twitter would, so this, the judge put forth and, uh, and allowed them to do expedited discovery. They requested that Twitter reveal who owned that account. Uh, the lawyer for the guy who sent the GIF petitioned against that, and his quote was that this is an attempt to use the suit to chill the First Amendment and further embarrass and harass John Doe, who, you know, they didn't know who the person right. was, yeah. um, which is a little ironic given the whole context of how much harassment was going on here. Um, Eigenwald's lawyers found out the identity without Twitter having to reveal it. But this could be a real test case for Twitter if it had gone forward. And we've seen that play out on other social media platforms in less obvious situations, right? Here, it was very clear that this was intended as a physical attack against Eichenwald. But there's cases where people post things that are not very nice or that, say, the government might say looks like they're sympathetic to terrorist groups, and then should we unveil the identities of all these people? So it's a tough line to walk on where do you preserve the anonymity of people on your platforms 
and where don't you? Um, that could be a judgment call that Twitter has to make on a case-by-case basis. They may come up with a kind of broader position on it. But I think, you know, if this were to go forward, it's one of those things that Twitter would have to be pretty savvy about. Because from a business perspective from them, do they want to look like the platform that supports physical attacks against people with sure. epilepsy? Like, probably not. They're already suffering from a business perspective because of the perception of them as a, a place where a lot of harassment goes on. And so you would think from that sense they would want to go ahead and hand that information over when it happens. On the other hand, like they have a really strong freedom of speech perspective and may decide that they want to protect everyone and protect the anonymity of all their users. It would be interesting to see how it plays out. And though it didn't have to go all the way in this case, I think it's going to, and that's something that they had better have some good plans in place for. But again, it does highlight something that we've talked with you about uh, before on the show, Jen, is just kind of the, the rules, uh, the issuance of rules for use of the Internet, which in some cases are way behind probably the rule of law that is out there. Now, that's a process that's changing right now, uh, but it's still it, it's a little bit of a uh, of a situation of playing catch-up. Yeah, I mean, you have such this illusion of anonymity, and it's an illusion to varying respects depending on the platform that you're on, but people do all kinds of things when they have an anonymous account that they wouldn't do if they were held personally accountable for it, uh, because it would cause reputation damage, which is sort of what the argument that uh, this guy's lawyers were making here that, oh, it's going to embarrass and harass him if people know that he did this. Right. Uh, you know, don't reveal my identity because it'll have consequences for me that I did this bad thing. Uh, people do a lot of bad things under the guise of anonymity online. And look, I think there's an important place for anonymous communication online. It allows people to have uh, conversations about all sorts of difficult or controversial topics and be protected. At the same time, it moves into some really uh, harassing at best and violent at worst places. And, you know, the, the platforms themselves need to think about what they're willing to support uh, because it's a really explicit support for some of these actions if they're not willing to unmask these users. Andrew? Um, so uh, those are all certainly... Uh, meritorious arguments. The, the one wrinkle um, that also plays in from the perspective of technology companies is that the buffer of anonymity, while it can be used to shield perpetrators of harmful acts, the buffer of anonymity, to the extent that it exists, also facilitates political exchanges and constructive speech that we rely on for the functioning of the democratic process. And particularly in an international environment where regimes are uh, not necessarily welcoming of alternative points of view, that buffer of some anonymity provides a safer space for exchange of ideas. And the second point that uh, we walk a line with in these kinds of contexts is recognizing the distinctions of when technology-mediated communications are really causing new kinds of harm and need specific frameworks legally to address them, or whether they're just causing old-school harms that we know how to, ha- how to handle as a legal matter, and there just may be a, a wrinkle of something that's new in terms of the way the particular harm is carried out, or, or whether we can relatively 
simply cabin that harm within that pre-existing framework. So we don't want to make up new laws when the old laws can handle the kinds of harms that we're seeing. And so we're always walking that line when we're dealing with uh, technology-mediated harms such as the one that we see here. Let, let me ask you, Andrew, from the legal perspective for a second, uh, it, we t- focused primarily on this one case where Mr. Eichenwald had this GIF image sent to him, but it, as was mentioned earlier, other people have done this since you know the first uh, instance of this happening. Is, is it your expectation that we will see more uh, cases brought forth and trying to find out who these people were? Uh, to try and bring them to task on on doing this as well? So this kind of harm isn't uh, unheard of in the history of the Internet. There were numerous instances on 4chan and other places where uh, there was discussion and use of this kind of attached gift to ostensibly trigger uh, physical ramifications in patients that that have epilepsy. So this kind of... use of gifts has been known for, for a long time. Um, but certainly in other areas of criminality, it's, it's true that we see copycat uh, crimes happening. So um, unfortunately, with every technology that gives people the leeway to do really great constructive, socially productive things, that freedom comes with having the darker side of the ability of uh, people who wish to cause harm to repurpose those technologies in ways that the creators of those technologies would not want to to happen. Um, So this dual-use nature of technology, much like the dual-use nature of other tools, knives have dual-use, for example. Um, They can cut your celery or uh, a a perpetrator can use a knife to stab someone. Right. Um, so we, we have these challenges with any dual-use technology. Uh, Jen, let me ask you a question as well. I mean, obviously, the one of the other stories that was out there uh, involved McDonald's a few days ago and this tweet that was put out that uh, at the initial time looked like McDonald's was making a political statement. McDonald's has uh, since come out and hacked. Uh, said that they were hacked. What is the what is the course of action for a company like McDonald's when they are in this situation to be able to potentially work with Twitter to try again, similar but slightly different work with Twitter to be able to find out who the perpetrator was who hacked them and be able to try and and bring some sort of case forward against them. Yeah, this is really interesting. So they called Donald Trump, I think, a disgusting excuse yeah. of a president in this tweet. Um, and don't forget the small hands comment. The small hands, yeah, right, with, yeah. with tiny hands. <laughs> uh, so, you know, it was obvious to anyone who saw that tweet that that was not McDonald's corporate-approved tweeting. Right, yeah. Uh, you know, there's a question of was it a rogue employee who had access to their Twitter account who posted this, or were they actually hacked? Um, there's some things that you can do to find that out without needing Twitter directly so you, if you have a programmer, which McDonald's certainly does, you can pull a whole bunch, you know, pages and pages of metadata about a tweet that will show you, among other things, uh, what device posted it. And so that can help you find out, you know, was it the platform that we normally use in-house or was it something used outside? Right. Uh, but if you were hacked, finding out who hacked you becomes a much more complicated process uh, because you do need Twitter to get in there and give you data 
Are they willing to do that? Maybe for somebody like McDonald's, uh, they're not with a normal person. So I've had accounts hacked, and I know I've, you know, I have people who have had their accounts hacked, and uh, Twitter's not really willing to get involved in that. On one hand, that makes sense, right? Lots of Twitter accounts get hacked every day, and it would be a huge investment of resources for them to really track every one of those down um, to get information to people. On the other hand, if you have you know big companies like McDonald's where you know their response to this is going to cost them a lot of money just in terms of uh, you know work hours that have to go into figuring out how to prevent it and what the response is, um, those people are really relying on Twitter as a platform. Their reputation is staked in it. Uh, this certainly is going to bring them some kind of reputational harm, even though it's not their fault. And so for those kinds of customers, Twitter might want to make exceptions. Um, but again, it, then it becomes a kind of balancing act of, do you do it, say, for a journalist who gets their account hacked, who's not a big multinational corporation, but right. still really suffers at the hands of it? Um, you know, I think Twitter's inclination at this point is going to kind of be to stay out of it unless they get ordered to do an investigation. But I could imagine occasional, you know, case-by-case exceptions for for big instances like but, this. But again, it kind of it, it plays back to something we've also talked to you about is the fact just the security element for both people and corporations of these social media accounts and really the focus that you have to have on those on a consistent basis. It's not like you can start a Twitter account and just kind of let it, you know, you put your tweets out and not worry about security for a year, year and a half. It's, it's a constant process. That's right. And because you're using a third-party platform, on one hand, you have a lot less control over the security that goes on with it. So you can have right. a good password. You can turn on some two-factor authentication, which I assume all these people have. Uh, but there's all kinds of other security ways that people can get into those accounts, not just figuring out your password, that uh, you don't have control over, that Twitter has to have control over. And that could be you have an app installed to help you send, like, scheduled posts, and someone gets access to that. Right. Um, you know, so it's not like you can put your security team on it and create this really robust security framework around your account. You're relying on lots of third parties. Twitter, I think, does a pretty good job with their security, but if you have these apps, who knows what's going on with those? And so it makes it very hard. You have to be really vigilant about monitoring as soon as a tweet goes up, have someone, you know, an external someone confirming that it's okay so you can get those bad ones down um, and lock the account down if you have to. It's a, a lot of work. Andrea, finally, uh, going back to the original uh, piece that we were talking about, the gentleman that, that sent this message to uh, Mr. Eichenwald, uh, he's going to most likely be brought into court. What What is the expectation for punishment that this person is going to have to deal with? Uh, so the statute that he's being charged under um, carries with it uh, a certain set of, of minimum uh, penalties, and so he'll if convicted, fall under the sentencing guidelines, um, and uh, courts will uh, appropriately determine the, the punishment per the statute's requirements and the sentencing guidelines. One other point that I'll just add on to the McDonald's uh, situation that you were yep. mentioning is that uh, mistakes of use happen. Employees sometimes uh, have, as something, a third-party app installed, uh, and they accidentally fat finger something. Their right. finger slips, and they post 
with the wrong account, for example. Right. And we've had a number of high-profile uh, cases where that's happened. And when I saw that McDonald's tweet, my initial instinct is, oh, someone was using tweet, and they thought they'd changed the account to their corporate account that they're supposed to be tweeting from. Right. And they instead uh, uh, tweeted something intended to be pushed out by their personal account through the corporate account. So on top of security compromise and the relationships with third-party providers, you also have human error that comes into play in some of these cases. Great to have you both with us. Thank you, Jen. Thank you, Andrea. All the best. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Jennifer Goldbeck at the University of Maryland. Andrea Matuishan, professor of law and professor of computer science at Northeastern University. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.